Content note. This episode of So Many Books, So Little Time contains various disturbing elements on top of the usual uh, suspects of intrusive thoughts that describe rather violent acts uh, of a sexual nature, deaths, grisly deaths, and horrifying descriptions that involve children and uh, civilians, as well as psychological distress and despair. And if you like things to be complete, well, we didn't quite finish the chapter. No. Sorry, it's a big chapter. And next episode will be a little bit more on the ball. Hey, hey, folks. Dave here. Andrew. And welcome to So Many Books. So little time. Please join us for our continuation of Catch-22 by Joseph Heller with Chapter 25, The Chaplain. Terrible. Terrible day. Terrible. The kid, as he's sometimes known. Mm. It, only, it was only a couple of years ago when I went back and watched some old Charlie Chaplin shorts, some of the earlier ones, and, you know, not seeing them before, I had no idea, but they really are just live-action Bugs Bunny cartoons. Part of, yeah, a lot of it is. A lot of it is, for sure. Which, which I mean, because the cartoons came later, obviously... <laughs> the, the people at Warner Brothers just like, hey, let's just animate what's going on with these uh, silent film comedians. Yeah, that that actually would track those essential. Yeah, it did become a bit like that, didn't it? A lot of them, a lot of the Buster Keaton was uh, another one that was very often emulated. Well, Jackie Chan basically based so many of his most impressive stunts off Buster Keaton's work. And I would have to recommend anyone who is interested in uh, silent film comedy. Uh, I've seen a couple Buster Keaton films, and my favorite is called Sherlock Jr. It's about 45 minutes. It's in the public domain. You can watch it on YouTube. And it's just, it's got a couple of stunts or camera tricks where, like, watching it, I'm like, I don't know how he did that. Which, you know, there's more excitement because it's 1924, so there's no CG. You know, everything has to be done manually in some way even if it's a camera trick you know with matte paintings or forced perspective or or just a really clever edit yes yeah the the techniques that the camera um trick techniques are very interesting and i think there's been a um resurgence of people playing around with camera techniques mm. I, I know that it's it's all over social media right now where they they emulate the like pan scan and things like like, like techniques that that where someone is, they move, the, they physically move the camera over their head, at a certain uh, speed, mm. in, 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 to, to cause some uh, effects in terms of perspective. So it it's, it is very clever. Like there, there's some very clever work going on, and 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 I, I like the fact that they're they're um, I guess don't it sound like this generation? I, I like the fact that these things are continuing as a skill. Yes. Um... I, I probably am going to sound a bit old man yelling at clouds when I get into this as well. But, you know, the the benefits of CGI are also its detriments. If yeah. um, I'll explain what I mean. But, you know, the idea that you can 
put anything on screen. Now, basically, if you can imagine it and you have um, access to a visual effects studio, um, yes, which usually employs people for terrible wages with huge periods of crunching overtime and grinds them into the ground, but that's another issue altogether. I just thought I'd bring that up. But mm. if you have access to a visual effects studio, you can basically replicate anything you can imagine. And the weird thing about that is that there had been, there's only been a handful of like CGI movies where like the visuals actually shock and impress me. Like, you know, I've never seen that before. Hmm. Uh, maybe it's because we're too acclimated to bombast. Um, maybe, maybe. Or, or, or maybe it is a, I don't want to think it's a lack of imagination because plenty of imagination still goes into these huge set piece effect sequences that mm. maybe it's that they're the only type of movies that we see in the theaters anymore. So it does become a little tiresome over time. I think um, it's, it's, it's a bit like, I want to say it's like seasoning. Mm. It's if you put, if you just constantly are being, uh, you, you're accustomed to high salt, high sugar food, your entire, like every, almost every meal has a high, is very, 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 heavy on the flavors then as soon as you have a slightly less seasoned food or an equally like like there's there's something about being used to it and then as soon as you you don't have those seasons that you are used to that seasonings that you the seasonings that you're used to then suddenly it, it's it's not quite it feels wrong it isn't like you're so not used to it and it, it throws you off I don't know. I, 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 yeah. I think I understand what you're getting at. The, the idea that we get so much thrown at us that we'd have to take a step away before it becomes interesting again. Yeah. Um, and and we're used to such high quali- high quantities of it that um, we don't reckon, like, it's not actually impressive if a film just uses a little of it. Yeah. Uh, be, so but, you, you, you miss out on something that is maybe more subtly flavored. But it's actually very tasty. But the, the, the point I wanted to go into was, um, I think, because of this overglut of CG that's... See, again, I don't want to say unremarkable, but yeah, we it, it becomes blasé. Um, yep. So then you've got films like... Well, we're going back 20 years, but, you know, like Lord of the Rings, all the practical effects and camera trickery they used for those movies. Um, Jurassic Park, that's going back even further, yeah. uh, is still looks excellent. Some of the CG looks a little dated, but they used lighting and puppetry to uh, hide when their effects weren't great. Because, again, that's early CG. Movies like John Wick, action movies where... Keanu Reeves trained for months upon months to be able to pull off these action set pieces. Uh, The Raid, those Indonesian martial arts movies. Uh, I brought up up Jackie Chan earlier. That's why I was, as a teenager, I fell in love with his work. Because, you know, at the end of every film during the credits, it shows all the times his stunts went wrong. (laughs) And I think there's there's a benefit with CGI in that we no longer have to place... Uh, actors and stunt people in extremely dangerous situations. Uh, our locations can also be no longer dependent on what what is politically or or uh, physically accessible. 
so so you, you and, and if the weather for example you, you're no longer production is no longer uh, a slave to the weather so to speak you know like there's there's it's okay the lighting and stuff you can actually control some of those those factors a bit more if you have a place that you're getting the lighting that you need you might be able to modify the backdrop and modify what the the appearance of the and we do that with set design anyway we do that with other things as well but it it's um an additional layer of freedom of expression but the downside is as you put it like there's a lot out there that is just not particularly well done and it's also unnecessary sometimes it's completely unnecessary where uh, like one of the most more famous things is is when there was a scheduling there was a uh, a scene reshoot or someone wasn't available for a scene reshoot and they was it um for um oh was that the army of the dead no, no, no. Because no. they replaced an actor with Tignataro using green screen on that. Yeah, no, no, that's also interesting. But the, the, uh, I mean, say an actor dies in the middle of shooting, that, that's a whole, there's a whole ethical question mm-hmm. thing like, would you now have in the contract, it, should you, does, <laughs> should you be deceased in the production of this movie, we reserve the right to use a CGI representation of you uh, in the case of, in the event of your death? Mm. Uh, to complete this movie and to promote it kind of thing. I'm I'm sure that's a thing now. Yeah. Um, I mean, Star Wars, just saying. Um, that happened with the Fast and Furious movies too. Yep. Yep. Fast Furious, that, that, that it does happen. But I, I'm thinking in terms of, what was the thing? Oh, Justice League. Because <laughs> Henry Cavill had a mustache. Oh, yes. Apparently that was really badly done. I never saw it. Oh, the- it's terrible. It's terrible terrible like i mean the whole movie has issues like mm. many so many so many issues I, I gotta say uh having not watched the original i did watch james gunn's new the suicide squad last week and that was very uh entertaining mm. i haven't seen it yet i i want to there's also um what was the other one the so you know there's the snyder cut that came out to, yeah a friend that- of mine we we did a um a over a period of about maybe two months, you know, we watched an hour at a time of that. Yeah, I've heard it's yeah. much improved over the original, but man, I it just, has its own issues. Yeah, I no, did not enjoy uh, that film at all. I think the problem with the Snyder Cut, there is a problem with it, and I think it's because the the tone is is also influenced by the the crisis and the emotional stuff that was going on in the life of the director. Mm-hmm. So I think yeah, that um, definitely affected it. Or or just his outlook, because yeah. I got to say that before the Snyder Cut of Justice League, after seeing Man of Steel in the cinema, I never wanted to watch another Snyder film again. It was just yeah, too he's, he's, he's bleak, a bleak and uh, nihilistic. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and it, it clouded like previous films of his I did enjoy. Yeah. But, but I, I, yeah. I'd say he's a, he's a cinematography wise and and film wise like it's yeah, mm-hmm. but it, it's just the tone that is hard to to especially when when you have your own things going on in your life, it's it's uh, it can be a little bit too much. Well, um, um, actually, a good example that was uh, earlier this year. I tried out uh, a game called BattleTech. Uh, it's mm. based on the MechWarrior series, which um, I don't know if you're familiar, Rue. It's one of those, I think it started as a tabletop or a pen and paper, but like I remember playing the video games in the 90s. It's 
basically Earth in the future, war is done with giant mechs, like giant AT-AT walkers, but they're all real, real decked out and, you know, there, there's all these different uh, models and makes, and it, it's basically mech, a mech combat simulator, that series. Mm. This new version of the game is more like a top-down strategy game where you have control over um, a, a few mechs and it's turn-based and, you know, you, mm. you strategically place them to be able to make your way to whatever goal it is. And it, it plays really well. It's very similar to the XCOM games of the last decade, which uh, have been highly lauded. But the the framework, the narrative framework when I tried out this game was basically it talked about the triumph of mankind going off into space and then almost immediately how we turned into different factions and now there's interplanetary wars going on. And the whole thing was about, you know, like this royal family betraying this clan and basically war destruction, getting civilians out, and just the bleak tone of, yay, it's the future, but we still all suck, and there's this terrible crap going on It sounds like World War, pre-World War I kind of Yes, uh, and and that that tone, as cool as the game seemed to play, I'm just like, especially a few months ago, I'm like, this is not a, a world I want to inhabit at the moment. But Maybe. it's not only that; it's not a world that that it's a. I guess this is going sideways, but it it's not a worldview that is something that reflects what you personally have seen humans being capable of. Like it doesn't include the capability of humans to not engage in, well, like to be sacrificial no, you, and to you, be, you, you, you know. You're, you're right, and I just made a distinction in my mind because, yes, um, I enjoy uh, apocalyptic fiction, the idea that we've had a collapse and then the people yeah. left over. A lot, a lot of the time the story is, can we build something better or can we just survive? I can yeah. appreciate that, but yes, you're right, this, this Battletech story, that's dystopic future. The idea yeah. that there hasn't been a collapse. In fact, no, we've kept advancing scientifically, but... It's almost it's almost that nihilistic view of, yeah, we we can advance as much as we want, but human nature sucks, so we're going to keep yeah. doing our human crap. And and I yeah, I don't believe that. I I, I, think, I think we've come a long what, way yeah. as people, yeah. and we have a long way to go. But I think we are yeah. making progress. I think that's what it is. Is that if you have a belief that human beings, that humanity doesn't have a preset, pre-programmed, this is it, this is just our nature way of doing things like if you don't have that perspective it means that you end up looking at a lot of these for me it just it clashes with how i see humans Mm -hmm. um yeah like and i can see how that would clash as well because we 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 believe in the potential for people to change and the potential for humanity to progress albeit at whatever pace it's going to happen we can't like i don't think Either of us can really no no one can uh, indicate the pace, but I think that if effort is actually put and there's a vision of we are actually capable of better, we are capable of more, and not just in terms of technological advancement, but in the way that we treat each other and w- way we consider fellow human beings, um, you know, well, part of who we. Are. I th- I think the two yeah. are intertwined as well. Yeah. Um, you know, it's almost like so. So you've probably heard this uh, thought expressed. Same with a lot, lot of our listeners. The idea that our human brains 
are not geared for the onslaught of what social media is. The idea that we've technologically created this thing that that is totally um, it, it it screws with how we process the world. It's too much for us. That that continual yeah. glut of mostly negative information mm. is too much for most of us to handle. But I don't know. Part of me thinks hasn't technology always been that way? The idea that we create these things, like actually, let, let's let's uh, go to probably the worst example: the atomic bomb. We created mm-hmm. something that can wipe us out completely. Yeah. Um, and and ever since it's been created, it's been a legitimate fear that you know th- there was thirty years in the Cold War where someone presses a button, we're doomed. Yeah. Um, and but yeah. but it's almost like okay, we've advanced scientific or technologically to this point. Where we we're we're sitting on the precipice of our own destruction. Oh, as people, we've got to rise up to to become responsible enough to be able to handle that. Yeah, I think the 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 question is always um, the like: Is technology there to be a tool, or is it an outcome? Hmm. Is it? Are we meant to have like, if you? don't have access to a smartphone now in the current society that most like many of us inhabit there's going to be a hand like there's mm-hmm. some areas where it's not but most societies having this technology is 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 a requirement and not just because oh everyone else has one but because we have now made our institution our institutional access is now dependent on it if you want to open a bank account if you want to see what your accounts are you are mostly driven to have it like your options are limited and you end up having to use that kind of technology if you want to have if you want to renew your driver's license Mm. most people unless you have access to a computer or to a smartphone in order to do this it's not going to be an option or going in person um, is a paperless society kind of idea is being driven for covid tracking uh in in our state here in australia and many australian states uh we now have a state app where there are QR codes on every business, yeah. and you scan that QR code into the app, so that you know if, if COVID breaks out anywhere you've been, well, they can they can trace it and hopefully help contain it. Yeah, and they now, can let now you know. for for a certain part of the population, that's going to be oh, they're infringing on us. But I I see it as a very helpful tool. Yeah, there's this. I mean, there's there's if it's used ethically, it's a very useful tool. Again. Technology. You can use a knife to chop up your vegetables, or you can mm-hmm. use it to hurt someone. Yeah. The technology is, is it's, um, and I agree that we have now created many tools, many devices, but not necessarily work as hard on in terms of our behavior that uh, allows us to use those things with wisdom and appropriateness. We also haven't necessarily put a, and we put a priority on the gimmicks. We put a priority on the technology. And that as we advance technology, we are actually advancing as a civilization. Well, no. Was it someone was saying it's the way that you can tell how a society or civilization is advanced is in how they treat. Uh, th- this is coming from an um, was from an archaeologist who said who I can't remember who said it, but that was basically going being asked. Oh, so do you base um, do you base the advanced nature of a civilization based on their their tools and their their um, technology? And she's like, most of the technology, either we're not going to understand how it works, 
or we're going to or it will have disintegrated by now because you know it would have been made of of materials that are not necessarily enduring mm. because they don't have to be so we don't really have great insight into the technology but what you can look at is the way that if you look at the bones of the people the remains of the people if they have got fractures and they've been set a certain way if they've been treated and in a certain way, usually that's how you can tell how advanced a civilization is by how they treated those who were ill or infirm or elderly. If you've got people in that society and the bonds, they obviously live to a relatively advanced age. Mm. That's an indicator that they're not just, they were not just, oh, well, too old now. They, they weren't being treated as a burden. They were pre being treated as part of the society, like they were still included. And life and was like that. Um, good, good enough that most people could get to that age. Yeah. So, I mean, and, and I'm not saying this is the only way to view civilization. In the, I'm saying like, these are facets that, that can be considered. We can look at, if we only look at the technology, we don't get the picture. If we only look at the, the longevity of the people, we also don't get the right picture. We don't. But if you look at how, if if the patterns of how they treated each other if there's a record of that somehow, that's usually what is an indicator of an advanced society. And in an advanced society, you it, it's it, depending on who you ask, they'll have different markers for what they consider progress. There, there was and, that yeah. uh, saying about how uh, judging society based on how the least among them is treated. Actually, yes. I think what, isn't that a quote by Jesus about how to treat other people? Uh, well, look, there's a lot of quotes in terms of religious scripture regarding treating other people. And most of the the, the quote unquote golden rule, depending on how you perceive it, be treating others. The least among you, something like uh, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, gosh. The Sermon on the Mount. The I'm going to say this wrong. There's a sermon about blessed are the meek. There's that. Uh, I, I'm thinking of some. But, you know, speaking of uh, treating people well and... Going and, to the opposite of that, let's talk about Milo, which happened last time. Uh, on our yeah, Milo is podcast. is very, um, very much out there to to basically be the nth degree of um, an individual in a in a um, in a the capitalist framework. So, the idea of innovation, progress, profit, profit mainly. But also progress. It's all about also progress for him because it's about showing how innovative he is in generating generating profit. That all your skills and abilities go towards profit and success. The fact that he everyone was in outrage. The fact that they bombed mm -hmm. their own people. But then as soon as he showed them, oh look! But I, I, I turned a profit. And then the 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 sinister nature of that. I mean, it hasn't been explicitly said, but I think we've all been thinking it. The everybody gets a share is BS. The only oh, one yeah. really profiting is Milo. He's he's just saying that to get everyone to go along with his schemes. It it reminds me of the the concept of um, what's it called? Oh, it's but it's good for the economy. Hmm. This and that is good for the economy, and when the economy is good, everyone you know gets a yeah, benefit. Yeah. Really. Because, you know, one of the things that someone sat down and actually there's a really I've got to find the article, but there's a really excellent article basically going that a certain amount of unemployment is required for certain economies to actually be sustained. Oh, yeah, yeah. Be because it creates scarcity in the job market, which is one of the drivers of capitalism. Exactly. So there's all these things. And 
that actually if you but but the problem is that if you let it go go out of control so if you don't have a balance where those people who are unemployed have a sufficient quality of life and ability to uh, spend on the economy that can backfire and slow it back down again as well so this idea that was it was basically a paper going if we don't address the fact that we need to provide better social support for those who are not employed so better unemployment benefits better better health security things like that for those who are not necessarily employed if we don't address that quickly the current that model of an economy is not going to actually last because it it's it works only on certain premises but as soon as you remove other parts of it that that whole theoretical system collapses and it's all intertwined i talked earlier about how you know with the advent of social media likes um, so many of us aren't like we we're not psychologically prepared for it. And, you know, mm-hmm. over the last 20 years, there's been a huge increase in mental health amongst the population. And yet, when you talk medically, mental health services are still not easily available or easily affordable for most people who need them. And they're still stigmatized by our societies at large. <laughs> it gets even better. <laughs> oh, gosh. So for you to get so people uh, are also up in arms right now. Latest outrage in the internet world is people who are self-diagnosing with who are self-diagnosing as autistic or having ADHD or whatever. People have their outrage. They need their outrage. And the the counterpoint often is, well, why don't you just go get a diagnosis? Mm. Well, at at are, the moment, I, I'd love to get a diagnosis, but I can't afford to go into the psychiatrist. No, a lot of people can't. A, can't afford the psychiatrist. B, diagnose, the diagnosis of certain conditions comes with a certain price tag for the assessment. Yep, and, and sometimes you have to go yeah. multiple times or even go to different people to yes. get it done. Yes, yeah. and because, because there's also biases that are inherent mm-hmm. in those people who are doing the assessments, which is why a huge chunk of people from Gen X or like the people who were born in the 80s and 90s are specifically women or people who were identified as women by the clinicians have now been diagnosed often as adults as having ADHD or being autistic because the actual criteria to assess said conditions has been uh, severely skewed to certain presentations and excluded other ones where they are forced uh, under more pressure to be socially uh, develop social patterns of behavior that are accepted by peers in order to survive. Um, So underestimating the effect of of, uh, survivorship pressure. Survival yeah. pressure. I don't know where, um, that kind of thing. Last year, when I, no, two years ago, when I read that book on ADHD, and it really um, ticked a lot of boxes, like it made a lot of sense that I might have it. the The book did talk about how a you know a lot of folks get diagnosed late in their life, mm-hmm. uh, but by that point, they've created so many strategies just to be able to live that it's quite yeah. remarkable. But not going down that road, uh, because we do need to start reading about yes. the, the chaplain, uh, who we, hopefully we, we will. can, we will. Who this hopefully just, can counteract yeah. some of uh, Milo's. Um, well, yeah, I think that yes, Vi- Milo's Violo, Violo. <laughs> but yeah, no. The the um, in terms of the uh, with a lot of conditions or a lot of neurodivergencies, all these things. The the challenge is that 
even if you do get diagnosed late, and by that stage you've developed some very interesting habits and usually increased uh, risk of a whole bunch of other conditions and other things because it has been unmanaged for so long. Getting diagnosed as an adult is... uh, It's an experience. It reminds me kind of how um, when learning an instrument, it's recommended that you go... Even if you're not only going to go a couple times, it's recommended you take lessons very early on because it's it it's very difficult. If you start playing and you pick up bad habits, it's a mo- lot more difficult to unlearn those later on. Yeah. Yes. It's it's a it's a rough rough kind of situation. So um, I think. We're going to find out a little bit more about the chaplain in the sense of that what he's... Can you imagine, like, being in an environment... He seems wholly ill-equipped mm-hmm. to cope with the circumstances he's in. Yeah, we, we've talked about how he um, definitely wants to do right by the people he's looking after, but not only the hierarchy, but Korn saddling him with a uh, assistant who's actively trying to sabotage him yeah. is not helping. And plus he, he doesn't have the backbone to stand up to. He, his he lacks self, he lacks that, that sense of belief and self-confidence in himself. Mm. Um, so that's not going to help. Yes. Chapter 25, the chaplain. It was already some time since the chaplain had first begun wondering what everything was all about. Was there a God? How could he be sure? Being an Anabaptist minister in the American army was difficult enough under the best of circumstances. Without dogma, it was almost intolerable. People with loud voices frightened him. Brave, aggressive men of action like Colonel Cathcart left him feeling helpless and alone. Wherever he went in the army, he was a stranger. Enlisted men and officers did not conduct themselves with him as they conducted themselves with other enlisted men and officers, and even other chaplains were not as friendly toward him as they were toward each other. In a world in which success was the only virtue, he had resigned himself to failure. He was painfully aware that he lacked the ecclesiastical oblom and savoir faire that enabled so many of his colleagues in other faiths and sects to get ahead. He was just not equipped to excel. He thought of himself as ugly and wanted daily to be home with his wife. Actually, the chaplain was almost good-looking, with a pleasant, sensitive face as pale and brittle as sandstone. His mind was open on every subject. Perhaps he really was Washington Irving, and perhaps he really had been signing Washington Irving's name to those letters he knew nothing about. Such lapses of memory were not uncommon in medical annals he knew. There was no way of really knowing anything. He remembered very distinctly, or was under the impression he remembered very distinctly, his feeling that he had met Yesarian somewhere before the first time he had met Yesarian lying in bed in the hospital. Ah, yeah, remember the last time we had a chapter about the chaplain, he talked about not only deja vu, but the other two that he had. Yeah. Uh, That was like a, a future one, and I can't remember what the other one was. I can't remember either. I think one of them was Reja Vu. <laughs> they were views. But but views. all three of them were, yeah, a different version of uh, feeling like something has happened that hasn't. 
or yeah, or something feeling that's... that something will happen that hasn't. Familiarity, yeah. yeah. But he has met Yossarian, technically. I think if if the hospital was after, after the funeral. Yeah, when you saw him naked in the tree. Yeah, or when he got the medal when he was naked. So yeah, that works. He remembered experiencing the same disquieting sensation almost two weeks later when Yasarian appeared at his tent to ask to be taken off combat duty. By that time, of course, the chaplain had met Yasarian somewhere before, in that odd unorthodox ward in which every patient seemed delinquent, but the unfortunate patient covered from head to toe in white bandages and plaster who was found dead one day with a thermometer in his mouth. But the chaplain's impression of a prior meeting was of some occasion far more momentous and occult than that of a significant encounter with the Osarian in some remote, submerged, and perhaps even entirely spiritual epoch in which he had made the identical fordooming admission that there was nothing, absolutely nothing, he could do to help him. Doubts of such kind gnawed at the chaplain's lean, suffering frame insatiably. Was there a single true faith? or a life after death? How many angels could dance on the head of a pin? And with what matters did God occupy himself in all the infinite eons before the creation? Why was it necessary to put a protective seal on the brow of Cain if there were no other people to protect him from? Did Adam and Eve produce daughters? These were the great complex questions of ontology that tormented him, yet they never seemed nearly as crucial to him as the question of kindness and good manners. He was pinched perspiringly in the epistemological dilemma of the skeptic, unable to accept solutions to problems he was unwilling to dismiss as unsolvable. He was never without misery and never without hope. Have you ever, he inquired hesitantly of Yasarian that day in his tent, as Yasarian sat holding in both hands the warm bottle of Coca-Cola with which the chaplain had been able to solace him, been in a situation which you felt you had been in before, even though you knew you were experiencing it for the first time? Yasarian nodded perfunctorily, and the chaplain's breath quickened in anticipation as he made ready to join his willpower with the Assyrians in a prodigious effort to rip away at last the voluminous black folds shrouding the eternal mysteries of existence. Do you have that feeling now? Yasarian shook his head and explained that déjà vu was just a momentary infinitesimal lag in the operation of two coactive sensory nerve centers that commonly function simultaneously. The chaplain scarcely heard him. He was disappointed, but not inclined to believe Yasarian, for he had been given a sign, a secret enigmatic vision that he still lacked the boldness to divulge. There was no mistaking the awesome implications of the chaplain's revelation. It was either an insight of divine origin or a hallucination. He was either blessed or losing his mind. Both prospects filled him with equal fear and depression. It was neither déjà vu, presque vu, nor jamais vu. It was possible that there were other vues of which he had never heard, and that one of these other vues would explain succinctly the baffling phenomenon of which he had been both a witness and a part. It was even possible that none of what he thought had taken place, really had taken place, that he was dealing with an aberration of memory rather than that of perception, that he never really had thought he had seen, that his impression now that he once had thought so was merely the illusion of an illusion, 
and that he was only now imagining that he had ever once imagined seeing a naked man sitting in a tree at the cemetery. That That's kind of getting a little too insular, though. Like, I don't want to say overthinking, but, you know, if you're, <laughs> you're questioning the questions. Yeah, yeah. I think, well, to be fair, he's being completely manipulated and twisted in the wind, so fair. It was obvious to the chaplain now that he was not particularly well-suited to his work, and he often speculated whether he might not be happier serving in some other branch of the service, as a private in the infantry or field artillery, perhaps, or even as a paratrooper. He had no real friends. Before meeting Gessarion, there was no one in the group with whom he felt at ease, and he was hardly at ease with the Osarian, whose frequent rash and insubordinate outbursts kept him almost constantly on edge and in an ambiguous state of enjoyable trepidation. The chaplain felt safe when he was at the officers' club with the Osarian and Dunbar, and even with just Nately and McWatt. When he sat with them, he had no need to sit with anyone else. His problem of where to sit was solved, and he was protected against the undesired company of all those fellow officers who invariably welcomed him with excessive cordiality when he approached and waited uncomfortably for him to go away. He made so many people uneasy. Everyone was always very friendly toward him, and no one was ever very nice. Everyone spoke to him, and no one ever said anything." Eusarian and Dunbar were much more relaxed, and the chaplain was hardly uncomfortable with them at all. They even defended him the night Colonel Cathcart tried to throw him out of the officers' club again, Eusarian rising truesently to intervene and innately shouting out, Eusarian, to restrain him. Colonel Cathcart turned white as a sheet at the sound of Eusarian's name, and, to everyone's amazement, retreated in horrified disorder until he bumped into General Dreedle, who elbowed him away with annoyance and ordered him right back to order the chaplain to start coming into the officers' club every night again. <laughs> the chaplain had almost so much trouble keeping track of his status at the officers' club as he had remembering at which of the ten mess halls in the group he was scheduled to eat his next meal. He would just as soon have remained kicked out of the officers' club had it not been for the pleasure he was now finding there with his new companions. If the chaplain did not go to the officers' club at night, there was no place else he could go. He would pass the time at Yasarian and Dunbar's table with a shy, reticent smile, seldom speaking unless addressed. A glass of thick, sweet wine almost untasted before him as he toyed unfamiliarly with the tiny corncob pipe that he affected self-consciously and occasionally stuffed with tobacco and smoked. He enjoyed listening to Nately, whose maudlin bittersweet lamentations mirrored much of his own romantic desolation, and never failed to evoke in him resurgent ties of longing for his wife and children. The chaplain would encourage Nately with nods of comprehension or assent, amused by his candor and immaturity. Nately did not glory too immodestly that his girl was a prostitute, and the chaplain's awareness stemmed mainly from Captain Black, who never slouched past their table without a broad wink at the chaplain and some tasteless wounding jibe about her to Nately. The chaplain did not approve of Captain Black, and found it difficult not to wish him evil. No one, not even Nately, seemed really to appreciate that he, Chaplain Robert Oliver Shipman, 
was not just a chaplain, but a human being, that he could have a charming, passionate, pretty wife whom he loved almost insanely, and three small blue-eyed children with strange forgotten faces who would grow up some day to regard him as a freak and who might never forgive him for all the social embarrassment his vocation would cause them. Why couldn't anybody understand that he was not really a freak, but a normal, lonely adult trying to lead a normal, lonely adult life? If they pricked him, didn't he bleed? And if he was tickled, didn't he laugh? It seemed never to occur to them that he, just as they, had eyes, hands, organs, dimensions, senses, and affections, that he was wounded by the same kind of weapons they were, warmed and cooled by the same breezes, and fed by the same kind of food, although he was forced to concede in a different mess hall for each successive meal. The only person who did seem to realize he had feelings was Corporal Wickham, who had just managed to bruise them all by going over his head to Colonel Cathcart with his proposal for sending form letters of condolence home to the families of men killed or wounded in combat. The chaplain's wife was the one thing in the world he could be certain of, and it would have been sufficient if only he had been left to live his life out with just her and the children. The chaplain's wife was a reserved, diminutive, agreeable woman in her early thirties, very dark and very attractive, with a narrow waist, calm, intelligent eyes, and small, bright, pointy teeth in a childlike face that was vivacious and petite. He kept forgetting what his children looked like, and each time he returned to their snapshots, it was like seeing their faces for the first time. The chaplain loved his wife and children with such tameless intensity that he often wanted to sink to the ground helplessly and weep like a castaway cripple. He was tormented inexorably by morbid fantasies involving them, by dire hideous omens of illness and accident. You know what we call those thoughts? We call those intrusive thoughts, and they're usually an indication of something going on. Hmm... And His... and often related to OCD and a whole bunch of other conditions. Oh, ah. Intrusive thoughts are a pain, but yeah. His meditations were polluted with threats of dread diseases like Ewing's tumor and leukemia. He saw his infant son die two or three times every week because he had never taught his wife how to stop arterial bleeding. Watched in tearful, paralyzed silence, his whole family electrocuted, one after the other, at a baseboard socket, because he had never told her that a human body would conduct electricity. All four went up in flames almost every night when the water heater exploded and set the two-story wooden house afire. In ghastly, heartless, revolting detail, he saw his poor dear wife's trim and fragile body crushed to a vicious pulp against the brick wall of a market building by a half-witted drunken automobile driver, and watched his hysterical five-year-old daughter being led away from the grisly scene by a kindly middle-aged gentleman with snow-white hair who raped and murdered her repeatedly as mm. soon as he had driven her off to a deserted sand pit, while his two younger children starved to death slowly in the house after his wife's mother, who had been babysitting, dropped dead from a heart attack when news of his wife's accident was given to her over the telephone. Well, okay. I, I think there is step up. A step beyond intrusive thoughts, wouldn't you say? No, no. This is these are intrusive oh, thoughts. Oh, okay, that's what, what it is. Like, yeah, these like are intrusive thoughts, but he's he's also there's something else probably. But it, yeah, these are these can be intrusive. It's like hardcore catastrophizing. Yeah. Well, no, catastrophizing. It's hard to differentiate. I think that that actually I have issues with the term catastrophizing, okay. but 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 mainly because there's a difference between reviewing the risks and odds and not being able to necessarily gauge them well 
right. versus intrusive thoughts versus someone who only thinks of the worst case scenario never goes, but what if it goes well? What if okay. it goes right? Whereas he's actually, like, he's looking at all these things and they're kind of invading his ability to focus, like, mm. they're, they're in his mind. But at the same time, he's also able to go, I, you know, I love my wife and I'm, I, I, my children and I appreciate them. So he's, it's not that he doesn't see them, uh, see things as going well. It's just that he's feeling a sense of responsibility. Notice how most of these things, he's feeling responsible for not being there. Mm-hmm. We're not doing something. So it's, yeah. it's that's the way these thoughts are related to that. Like I haven't done enough. Or I'm stuck over here and there over there. And what if some, this happened? Because, oh, did I ever tell her about this? And did I ever do this? And it'll be my fault. So he's blaming himself for everything, as mm. he does with everyone else. He blames himself that he can't help Yossarian. Or, but he knows or he can't. He blames himself for Corporal Wickham being so awful to him. Yes, he constantly blames himself, and that's and so of course intrusive thoughts are going to happen. So yeah, it's a bit. Hmm. These are extreme, but they are intrusive thoughts. The chaplain's wife was a sweet, soothing, considerate woman, and he yearned to touch the warm flesh of her slender arm again and stroke her smooth black hair, to hear her intimate, comforting voice. She was a much stronger person than he was. He wrote brief, untroubled letters to her once a week, sometimes twice. He wanted to write urgent love letters to her all day long and crowd the endless pages with desperate, uninhibited confessions of his humble worship and need and with careful instructions for administering artificial respiration. (laughs) He wanted to pour out to her in torrents of self-pity all his unbearable loneliness and despair and warn her never to leave the boric acid or the aspirin in reach of the children or to cross the street against the traffic light. He did not wish to worry her. The chaplain's wife was intuitive, gentle, compassionate, and responsive. Almost inevitably, his reveries of reunion with her ended in explicit acts of lovemaking. See, he can think of what what goes right. Mm. So it's it's not just seeing things from that. Well, yeah, er, earlier it talked how he constantly had hope in his heart. And this is definitely hope. When I finally get back to her, we're going to go at it like rabbits. Not how I would have phrased it. He just said lovemaking. So it's a bit, it's a bit less crude. He is, he is after all. Well, yeah, no, it doesn't mean much. But um, yeah, he was talking about this. He has these two extreme minds or feelings, sensations. One is hope and one is just complete despair. So it's, it's, it, he lives in that seesaw uh, emotional state. The chaplain felt most deceitful presiding at funerals. And it would not have astonished him to learn that the apparition in the tree that day was a manifestation of the almighty censure for the blasphemy and pride inherent in his function. To simulate gravity, feign grief, and pretend supernatural intelligence of the hereafter in so fearsome and arcane a circumstance as death seemed the most criminal of offenses. He recalled, or was almost convinced he recalled, the scene at the cemetery perfectly. You could still see Major Major and Major Danby standing somber as broken stone pillars on either side of him. See almost the exact number of enlisted men in almost the exact places in which they had stood. See the four unmoving men with spades, the repulsive coffin, and the large loose triumphant mound of reddish-brown earth, and the massive still depthless muffling sky so weirdly blank and blue that day it was almost poisonous. He would remember them forever for they were all part and parcel of the most extraordinary event that had ever befallen him, an event perhaps marvelous, perhaps pathological, the vision of the naked man in the tree. 
How could he explain it? It was not already seen or never seen, and certainly not almost seen. Neither déjà vu, jamais vu, nor presque vu was elastic enough to cover it. Was it a ghost, then? The dead man's soul? An angel from heaven or a minion from hell? Or was the whole fantastic episode merely the figment of a diseased imagination, his own, of a deteriorating mind, a rotting brain? The possibility that there really had been a naked man in the street, two men actually, since the first had been joined shortly by a second man clad in a brand mustache and sinister dark garments from head to toe, who bent forward ritualistically along the limb of the tree to offer the first man something to drink from a brown goblet, never crossed the chaplain's mind. reality the reality uh, you know the truth is stranger than fiction my way is the devil <laughs> yeah. Yeah. so um this chapter is huge uh so rue has informed me that this is a good place to stop right now because the next chunk of the chapter which goes on for some time is all kind of another idea distinct from uh, the chaplain seen Milo and Yasserine in a tree and just yeah. all. So I, I guess, yeah, let's talk about what we've, we've just gone through. I mean, we kind of we kind of took a couple breaks there to talk about how yeah. he's definitely got intrusive thoughts, but he he still holds on to hope. Um, he's in a weird space yeah. where, yeah, he seems to blame himself for everything, but but he really cares about people. Yeah, so he cares about people. He's probably not well suited to being an army chaplain. It's not quite right. Mm. Um, he had the whole thing where he he he's got a, a, an interesting relationship with reality. Yeah, uh, he, yeah. He's constantly questioning not just like if everything he's seen and experienced what it is and what it might mean, but if it is even real, or whether he's actually experienced it. Hmm. So he's got a, I mean, it could also be something else going on beyond the intrusive thoughts. Yeah. I mean, he's, you know, he, he sounds just as unwell as every other character in yeah. wartime in this book. And, and the question is, has he, he probably already had a bit of a questioning approach, but it was saying at the beginning, he's, he's, it was difficult under the best circumstances, but without dogma, it was almost intolerable. There's that inconsistency. There's no ritual and structure. Or, or do you think, I mean, dogma probably does relate to that, but I'm also, I took that as, you know, like, like no doubt whatsoever, like that fervent belief. Yeah. And because it, the circumstances are making him question everything. Like the fact that he, he probably had saw himself as someone who was good with people and had a good, like that, that stability of family and love and all that. And that's not there and so he's not quite sure who he is as a person mm. he does he thinks he's a failure because no matter what he does people are dying and suffering and then no one's ever happy well what what you said how he felt like a complete fraud at funerals more than anything yeah, yeah. like, like, like he, trying because to he was questioning is there a life after death is there a true faith and all these questions come up if you're constantly surrounded by death and dying those questions are going to become more pronounced and more challenged, uh, you know, so getting through it. So, yeah, understandable why, why he's the way he is. Especially that idea where you, because um, it also seems like he doesn't, he's not in the clique among chaplains either. Like no. they all the, all, the rest of the chaplains all avoid him. Mm. So, so the idea that everything where he is, is basically, 
you know, things aren't running well. Nothing makes no. sense. No one's doing the job they're supposed to be doing. No, but it's also, it was saying that he's a very, he's very, very lonely. Mm-hmm. And yet he doesn't want to worry his wife. So he can't even express it to her. And he's the chaplain. It's not like he can turn to the chaplain. Yeah, he, he's supposed to be comforting everyone else. Although that, that's, that's hard as well, because it seems like Corn and Cathcart are sending him off to different people every day. So maybe he doesn't get a chance to form any relationship. Plus, no. I think because he's a chaplain, people would treat him with suspicion anyway, let alone the fact that he doesn't really know how to get along with people. Yeah. So he he's found a little home being able to hang with Yossarian Dunbar. And he even, he even likes Nate Lee and McWatt. But, but he also likes being out in the we- uh, in the. Um, mm. He actually likes being in the forest because mm. he can. He can. I think he tried to. He grew some plants and like he's tried to create some sort of sense of normalcy, mm. despite the fact that it's not a normal situation. Yeah, yeah he's he's um, he's wor- he's his worries about his family are consuming him, and especially when he's surrounded by death and he he, he sees all these the hurt and the pain and the, the things that humanity is going through, so to speak. It's hard. It's, it's making him question his reality, which, fair. Yeah, I, I'm, especially if, if I had a wife and children at home who I love very much, it's like, why am I risking my life over here? But also people are suffering here and I'm not actually, I don't think I'm actually making a difference. Mm-hmm. Me being here is not helpful. Yeah, that that it's it's often been said that like one of the most important things to give people hope or to get them out of bed in the morning is purpose, a sense of purpose. Pur- yeah, purpose is huge, and I mean he might understand why the motivation for what he needs to be doing, but in terms of he's got so many barriers interfering with his ability to in- ex- enact his purpose. Mm. That yeah, it's it's a problem. Oh, dear. Yeah, but poor yes. guy. <laughs> I'm still amused by the fact that he's like, there was this miraculous situation and I don't know what it was and some sort of the universe is speaking to me kind of thing and you're going, no, 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 it's it's a naked guy in the tree and it's it's real. It it was it, it was literally a Syrian in the tree. It's like, oh no, it was something mystical, something mysterious. Like, yeah, you, you saw him before in the tree, before you saw him in the hospital. But, but I oh, like no. the idea that, you know, he mentioned seeing Milo there with his um, brown sinister uniform handing handing the naked man like a like a cup and it really feels like you know like a devil kind of t- trying to tempt <laughs> so, which is, so is exactly kind of what it was wasn't what it, it was yeah it was it was milo trying to say this is come join in my adventure it's like n- no no yeah yes. out, out of all the all the all the uh, characters so far in this book milo definitely is the most faustian i'd say Yes, and he's also the pre. He this was the pre bombing. Oh no! I wonder what happens. Oh, I want to. I'm gonna figure out. I want to know the timeline. We'll get there when we're at the end. But you you want timeline. to see if there if the chaplain has a reaction to the bombing. Mm. I'm curious if a he survives the bombing. Hmm. Um, you know, as as we we hit sixty percent during this read, and. Now, I think the question is more relevant, but we're going to start to answer the questions like, at the end of this book, who's going to be left alive? Yeah. Like, yeah. So my thing is, I don't know whether he's going to survive the bombing because he Mm. is out in the middle of nowhere. And given that they might have been trying to avoid 
you know, whether they wanted mm-hmm. the, they, they they would have done their job, but maybe they would have tried to avoid would have gone, oh, well, let's aim for the forest because there's fewer people there, but the chaplain's there. I, I see where you're going, but I also, I kind of don't believe that because it feels like the Germans paid Milo to bomb these targets. So, Because remember, he said, like, um, a guy who'd done all those bombs goes, well, what do I do now? And he's like, well, my orders say the strafe, so uh, strafe. And he's like, okay, strafing. Well, he said, no, he said, really? He said, yeah. Do it. It's like, all right, okay, yeah. So it was, it was, but there was hesitance for a moment there. But well, oh well be, because so strafing contract, contract. is strafing is evasive maneuvers, and no one's firing at them because no one's at the guns. Yeah. So yeah. there's no reason to. It's a bit silly. It's all good. But um, so yes, fascinating. Yeah. Well, we'll continue. Hopefully, we'll continue and complete this chapter next episode. Yes. But until then. If Rue can remember, she can remind me, but I'll keep it in mind too. Next episode, because we're continuing the chapter, um, I will do my best. We will do our best to start as soon as possible. We might quickly talk about what happened last episode, but then we're going to get right into it. I promise you that. As as much as we can, get right into it. Yes, yes. No promises. But... Until then, the music at the top of the podcast is Soap Runs. It's by Rupert Gregson-Williams and Harry Gregson-Williams. It's from the 2019 adaptation of Catch-22. The music at the end of the podcast is I'm the Slime by Frank Zappa. You can find me over on Twitter at Dave underscore the underscore turnip. And you can find me at Rue McMoo. You can find our Twitter at SMBSLT podcast. And that's at that's on Twitter. That's on Facebook. That's also, um, the beginning of our email address, which continues with at gmail.com. So if you'd like to send us a message, if you'd like to send us an email, please do so. Um, and we will hopefully either get back to you directly or via the podcast. And if you listen to our podcast um, on any platform that allows for ratings or reviews, we would appreciate if you would give us one. Yeah. So until next time, uh, we hope you're enjoying your reading. Please stay safe and we'll see you in a week's time. Goodbye. Yes.